This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Pagley in Stockholm, and here on Episode 7, we'll be hearing from Professor Michael Byers, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics and International Law at the University of British Columbia. His acclaimed books include International Law in the Arctic and Who Owns the Arctic? Understanding Sovereignty Disputes in the North. In the interview with Polar Geopolitics, conducted at the 2018 Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland, Professor Byers compares Arctic governance with another cold, dark, and dangerous place, outer space. We also discussed the sometimes ambiguous concept of sovereignty in the Arctic, as well as Arctic politics in Professor Byers' home country of Canada. Here he is explaining where he first made the connection between the Arctic and outer space. My um, interest in the connections between the Arctic and outer space actually started at the U.S. State Department, not because I've ever worked at the U.S. State Department, but because I have colleagues who have worked there and, and who work there. I learned that there is a position in the legal office at the State Department where a single lawyer is charged with responsibilities for both the Arctic and outer space. And this person is referred to as the lawyer for cold, dark, and dangerous places. And when I learned this, it became obvious to me that this was actually a very wise combination because the Arctic and space have a lot of similarities and an awful lot of connections. So in terms of connections, the modern Arctic is dependent on satellites for communications, for search and rescue, and for Earth imaging, for Uh, measuring uh, sea ice from space for doing climate science from space. And indeed, many of these satellites are in polar orbits. And so the largest commercial ground station in the world is located on Svalbard in the Norwegian high Arctic with dozens and dozens of satellite dishes, visible manifestation here on Earth of the important connections between the Arctic and space. And as I dove deeper into these questions, I also discovered that there were some important similarities in terms of politics, so that today, for five years after the invasion and annexation of Crimea, in a situation where most NATO-Russian relations have broken down, including because of, of sanctions, Russia and the West cooperate very well in the Arctic. The Arctic Council is working without any problem and has been throughout the last four years. And in space, Russian cosmonauts and Western astronauts work together in the very tight confines of the International Space Station. And the Western astronauts, including Canadians, Germans, others in addition to Americans, can only get to the space station on top of a Soyuz rocket. So this cooperation continues in space as it does in the Arctic. And so I'm interested in the reasons why. I'm a political scientist as much as an international lawyer. So what prompts this continued cooperation. And and one of the answers is that both the Arctic and space are cold, dark, and dangerous. They're very expensive places to operate. The risks are very high. And so one of my hypotheses is that countries come together in regions where going it alone is prohibitively expensive or just too dangerous, where they need each other. Will this lead over time, or has it already perhaps uh, lead to, to governance structures? I mean, of course, you have the Arctic Council and the Arctic. I'm not sure how space is governed internationally. Is there such a body for outer space as well? Uh, there is. There's a parallel body called the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. It's a United Nations body 
that meets in, in Vienna. It's very similar to the Arctic Council in that it's not treaty-based. It operates on the basis of consensus, but it adopts a large number of, of instruments, uh, mostly soft law instruments, uh, such as guidelines, that effectively guide all of the spacefaring nations in their operations and in their cooperation with each other. The Arctic Council is not based on a treaty. It operates on the basis of consensus. It has lots of working groups and task forces, and it adopts a lot of instruments that are mostly guidelines, even if three of them are called treaties. They have permissive provisions, not mandatory clear obligations. So the, the similarities are, are actually quite striking, and, and I think a comparative analysis enables us to uh, pull out some insights that might not otherwise be visible. Two other uh, cold, remote, dangerous, dark places I can think of uh, would be Antarctica yes. and the deep sea. Is there any similarities there as well, or any other governance structures? Of course, the Antarctic Treaty uh, mm -hmm. comes to mind. Do you see any parallels? Yes, there certainly are parallels. And, and indeed, those two regions are precedents as much as anything else. The law of the sea goes back centuries because nations have been active on the oceans far longer than they've been heavily engaged in the Arctic or, or able to go to space. So the progression of legal and institutional development is more advanced with regards to the oceans. But we see that also transferring to the Arctic because the Arctic is, of course, an ocean surrounded by continents. So that pre-existing body of rules and institutions is transferring there. For instance, uh, with regards to the new fisheries agreement uh, for the Central Arctic Ocean, that's the extension of legal and political developments uh, on the world's oceans into the Arctic in a, a cooperative way. And the Antarctic is uh, an interesting uh, comparison. Uh, because it reflected an early Cold War decision to uh, avoid tension and conflict by essentially freezing territorial claims. And there is a, an ongoing set of governance mechanisms, uh, not just treaties, but, uh, but essentially working groups, task forces, seeking to manage the issues as they arise. So they're different, but similar. And that's what gets political scientists excited. You want your case studies to be close enough to be relevant to each other, but distant enough to you know, show you why things are actually happening the way they are. And speaking of these places we've talked about so far, um, outer space, deep sea, polar regions, these are regions that China, to look at, we've talked about Russia and the United mm -hmm. States, but these are areas that China has tried to assert itself, not so much as a, as a place for cooperation, but more as a way to sort of project power and influence into these, these territories where the claims aren't perhaps as strong, national claims aren't as strong as the rest of the known mm -hmm. universe. Do you see any contradictions there? I don't. Um, do you believe this thesis, or, or do you think do you object to that? I, well, I, I think that, that if, if one focuses on what China is actually doing, one finds um, that, that China is working with existing rules and institutions mm -hmm. with regards to most of the issues involving uh, the oceans. So to give you a, a simple example, China uh, is the first country to seek and receive a permit for deep seabed mining under uh, Part 11 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, this is via a, a, an international institution called the International Seabed Authority. And China is leading the way in terms of making this institution functional and actually getting a permit that requires that deep seabed mining be done in a sustainable way that protects the environment. So, so good for China in that regard. 
There are uh, other issues, for instance, China in becoming an observer state at the Arctic Council, accepting the application of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea to matters such as uh, extended continental shelves and the right of coastal states to the natural resources of the continental shelf out to the end of that shelf, in some cases more than 250, 300 nautical miles from shore. China accepts that. Of course, China benefits from the exact same rule in the East China Sea in its disputes with South Korea and Japan. The one anomaly here is, of course, the South China Sea, where China has legal arguments with regards to an historical basis for its jurisdiction up to what they call the nine-dash line that contradicts the general view of international law. But that is one dispute. It's an important dispute. But it's almost the exception that proves the rule that, for the most part, China is behaving itself. And I would actually put forward the thesis that as the world's largest trading nation and the largest shipping nation, that China needs commercial activities on the world's oceans to be protected from interference by other countries. And that's what the law of the sea offers to China. And so it's a, a beneficiary from the rules for the most part and therefore is following them. And I, I don't look at China as following rules for simply uh, benevolent reasons. China's following the rules because it's in the Chinese national interest to do so. Do you see these regimes that we've discussed here, uh, whether it's the polar regions, deep sea, do you see these as resilient regimes? Do you see any threats, any emerging challenges that could be coming in the years ahead? Well, there are always pressures that arise on any aspect of, of, of politics, governance, both national and uh, international. So, so yes, these rules and institutions uh, require ongoing work to uh, maintain their functionality uh, and, and ideally to improve them. So with regards to the question of extended continental shelves in the Arctic, right now, Russia, Canada, and Denmark are making submissions to a body of scientists at the United Nations as to the extent of their sovereign rights. And these submissions overlap. Now that's okay, because the process right now is in the scientific phase. And the scientists may well come back and say, well, actually, the, the Lomonosov Ridge that runs across the center of the Arctic Ocean is a natural prolongation of both sides, of both the Russian continent and Greenland, Canada, uh, because uh, way back many millions of years ago, these land bodies were, in fact, a single continent. So the scientists might come back and say, you're both right. And, and therefore, there will be overlapping areas of sovereign rights. And at that point, Russia, Canada, and Denmark are going to have to sit down and negotiate maritime boundaries. Now, those could be pretty tough negotiations. I don't know what the geopolitics will be like in 10 or 15 years. You know, I can foresee challenging negotiations. But I can also see all three countries following the rules right now and, and, and doing so knowing that this issue will not be resolved until they sit down, the three of them, and start drawing lines. And that's a political process. That's not a legal process. The negotiation of the boundaries will be a political process that will be informed by rules. So, for instance, there's a principle of equidistance that is uh, general international law with regards to maritime boundary delimitation. But states can diverge from equidistance if they agree to do so with their other negotiating partners. So there will be lines. They'll be roughly in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. They'll be roughly equidistance uh, between the three countries, but 
ultimately, yes, there will be political trade-offs before a compromise is achieved. Perhaps we can move on to another theme that's related to this, the idea of sovereignty and state sovereignty, which often comes up in the Arctic as well sovereignty over the extended continental shelf. But even sometimes it seems like it bleeds into areas where it doesn't seem like sovereignty is really questioned, particularly in your country, Canada. Can you perhaps discuss and explain Canada's outlook on sovereignty, which it sometimes seems almost like some sort of a preoccupation? Well, sovereignty is a term that means different things to different people. So for international lawyers, uh, sovereignty is about the legal jurisdiction of a country. And uh, from that perspective, there are very few sovereignty disputes in the Arctic. Canada has a tiny dispute over a small island between Ellesmere Island and Greenland called Hans Island. But our disputing partner is Denmark, and we are very close allies of Denmark. So yes, there's a sovereignty dispute. It's 1.3 square kilometers in size, and it's of no relevance whatsoever. We have a, a maritime boundary dispute with the United States and the Beaufort Sea. But again, it's not of great relevance because we're very close allies of the United States. And it's not even about the hydrocarbons that might be there because under Chapter 6 of what used to be called NAFTA, we have a common energy market with the United States. But a lot of people, especially people who live in the North, think of sovereignty in a a much broader way that goes way beyond the legal issues to include issues of social and economic development. So for the Inuit of Northern Canada, their view of sovereignty includes the level of economic and social development and the, uh, the crying need for, for more assistance from Canada's national government. So sovereignty for them is eliminating the endemic tuberculosis in northern Canada. It's uh, dramatically reducing uh, the very high suicide rate. It's about addressing a housing crisis where up to 20 people have to share a small two-bedroom house and in the extreme weather conditions of the Arctic and all of the social pressures that arise from that overcrowding, including one of the highest rates of intimate partner violence in the world. So for the Inuit, it's not about lines on a map. It's about saying to the Canadian government, look, uh, if you're a serious country, and Canada is a serious country, it's a G7 country, it has, I think, the 10th or 12th largest economy in the world, Right. If you're a serious country, then you know, part of your sovereign responsibility is taking care of Canadians who are in these desperate straits, not only in the North, but most acutely and visibly in the North. So in, in that sense, it's a social outlook on sovereignty. They have quite a bit of political sovereignty at this mm-hmm. point within, within the country of Canada. Yeah, and sovereignty becomes a, a term that's used for leverage. Right, because if Inuit leaders go to southern Canada and say, look, we need help with our health and our housing and our education crises, Mm -hmm. that might not resonate that widely. Mm -hmm. But if they come to southern Canada and start talking about Arctic sovereignty, it gets wrapped up in people's minds with these conceptions of contested territory, contested maritime space, relations with other countries like Russia or China. So it's a way of drawing attention to the acute domestic problems. And, and from that point of view, it's a, it's a very wise strategy, right, to talk about sovereignty at home within, again, this terminology of sovereignty that, to the lawyers, is actually about the small, uh, ragged edges of, uh, of nation-state claims. As an expert in international law, do you see a problem with that, with this sort of use of sovereignty for instrumental purposes, used differently in different contexts? Or you say it's a wise strategy, but you think it, it just confuses the concept? I think it simply requires that 
academics, bureaucrats, politicians are aware of these differences and don't deliberately confuse people. Again, it's a strategy that works for the Inuit. And, you know, we can respond to the, the legitimate positions of the Inuit by saying, yes, let, let's help you with your, your serious social economic problems. And, and you can call it sovereignty if you want. But, but for us in southern Canada, it's just the fact that, you know, we're not treating you at the same level that Canadian citizens like yourselves deserve to be treated. So we can, we can respond to those problems while also you know, being able to keep our eye on another ball, which is, yeah, we need to negotiate that boundary dispute with the United States and the Beaufort Sea. And at some point, we'll have to negotiate a boundary with Russia and the Central Arctic Ocean. And, uh, and yes, we, we, we do need to uh, work with uh, a major shipping nation like China as it seeks to use the Northwest Passage uh, for uh, commercial voyages. And, well, the Northwest Passage is another issue where nobody disputes that the Northwest Passage is Canadian, but the United States says that it's uh, an area of Canadian waters through which there is a right of transit. That this is a, a so-called international strait that passes through Canada's waters. And, you know, so in, in a broad sense, it's a sovereignty dispute, but ultimately it's about the extent of coastal state jurisdiction, and, and we need to work, and we do work very closely uh, with the United States on this issue, and now we need to work with China as it explores the options for Arctic shipping. Can you say a bit more about the current state of Canadian Arctic policy? I mean, we've heard, you mentioned the social issues. There's this new uh, science station being uh, opened in, in Cambridge Bay. Yeah, we hear about these, uh, these patrol ships that are being launched mm -hmm. or being built, perhaps, at this point. What are the main issues right now for Canada in terms of the Arctic? Well, the, um, the Canadian government, which is coming up on three years of a liberal government under Justin Trudeau, is still working on its Arctic policy. And it's unclear when that will be done whether it will even be done before the next election. So there is no policy, except insofar as the previous government, led by Stephen Harper, had a policy. That policy technically remains in force. And part of that policy is actually to negotiate maritime boundaries with our neighbours in the Arctic. Uh, it's not a belligerent policy, even if Stephen Harper liked to make some political gain out of... Uh, Arctic sovereignty as a rhetorical device. But in terms of, of other issues, Canadian government is clear that it does not see a state-to-state -state threat in the Canadian Arctic. Russia is a concern for Canada, especially in places like Eastern Europe and the Middle East, but there's no sign of uh, a Russian desire to, uh, to gain more Arctic territory. It, it already has more than anyone else. And again, the Arctic is a very expensive place in which to operate. So we're not worried about Russia in the Arctic. We're worried about Russia elsewhere. And we have, and most people don't realize this, we have exceptional uh, surveillance capabilities in the Canadian Arctic. We have radar stations that we operate with the United States as part of the North American Aerospace Defense Command. We have RCMP officers in every tiny community providing ears and eyes for the Canadian government. And we have some exceptionally high-tech satellites uh, synthetic aperture radar satellites that can take high-resolution images at night through clouds. Uh, and in fact, we're launching the next three, uh, which are called RadarSat Constellation, uh, in February of next year. So we know what's going on in the Canadian Arctic. We have the capacity to deploy from southern Canada if that were necessary. But again, the Canadian government does not see a state-to-state -state threat at this time.
Two issues we haven't touched on regarding the economic development of the northern parts of Canada. That would be uh, cruise tourism. There were some incidents to the summer where a cruise ship was stranded. And also uh, natural resource development, uh, particularly oil and natural gas. From what I understood, a governor of one of the northern uh, territories suggested that the offshore area should be opened up to drilling. Well, let's deal with those issues in turn. The Canadian Arctic still has unpredictable ice conditions. In fact, this year there was a rather large amount of ice in the Canadian archipelago. And the cruise ships couldn't go where they wanted to go, so they went into uncharted waters. And one of them did indeed become grounded on a rock. Fortunately, uh, the weather was good and no one was injured. But it does highlight that the Canadian government needs to prohibit cruise ships from going into uncharted areas and that they probably need to carry uh, search and rescue insurance so that the Canadian government can be reimbursed for the rather substantial costs of rescuing an entire cruise ship in terms of all the passengers and crew. So there are challenges there. There's also uh, talk about imposing landing fees on cruise ship passengers wanting to come to, to small Inuit communities so that the communities actually benefit from these visits. Uh, and these are communities that are in situations of social and economic desperation. So I, I think that's a, a really good idea. But these are, are issues that can be worked through. And, and I actually do support tourists going to the Arctic and seeing the Arctic and learning about the indigenous peoples and, and also, and very importantly, learning about climate change, which is, of course, more visible in the Arctic than anywhere else on Earth. So tourism in itself is relatively low impacts. It's a good form of economic development. And Canada seems to understand that. In terms of the other issues, natural resource development, we have some, some excellent mining projects underway in northern Canada. We have diamond mines. We have the uh, world's largest, purest deposit of iron ore at Mary River on northern Baffin Island. And those projects, especially the Mary River project, those projects involve very close coordination with Inuit. Uh, In fact, that mine is located on Inuit-owned land. So there's a real synergy going on there. And oil and gas, in 2016, Barack Obama and Justin Trudeau announced moratoriums on Arctic offshore uh, drilling. The American moratorium is being lifted by Donald Trump, which leaves Canada with the sole moratorium in North America. There's discussion about lifting that, but to be completely frank, exploring for oil in the Canadian Arctic is a a very expensive proposition because of sea ice, because of remoteness, because of an absence of coastal infrastructure. So unless the price of oil were to double or triple from today's price, nothing's going to happen uh, in the Canadian Arctic. So if the moratorium is lifted, it will be lifted for political reasons. And I can't even see that happening because climate change is becoming a huge issue around the world, and that includes Canada. So actually opening up another area of extreme oil to development is something that would play the wrong way in terms of a political message for Justin Trudeau. But is there differing perspectives on that between the federal government level and the the state governments? Because they might see... Like in America, Alaska is often more pro-oil exploration than the federal government. Is it the same, same dynamic in Canada? There is, and, and the, the premier of the Northwest Territories, Bob McLeod, is, uh, is quite emphatic in saying this moratorium has to be lifted. Uh, he sees this as, as important for the future economic development of his territory. That's a, a perfectly legitimate perspective to take. But Justin Trudeau looks at this and sees that the Northwest Territories only has one seat in the House of Commons. There are more than 330 seats in total. So it's not a big vote-gaining issue for Justin Trudeau. He could afford to lose the Northwest Territories, which his party currently holds, and still have a majority government in Ottawa. So so yes, there are differences. People will know about Alberta, which is our major oil-producing province, and 
politicians there tend to be very pro-oil development, not of the Arctic, but of the uh, oil sands uh, in northern Alberta. And that view coexists with the view of many other Canadians, especially in non-oil producing provinces, uh, that uh, you know it's time to move off of fossil fuels because of the crisis of climate change. Professor Byers, thank you very much for joining us on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast. And thank you for all the excellent questions. It's been a very great pleasure. That was Professor Michael Byers, who I interviewed at the 2018 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics Podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.